The Supreme Court's June 2020 decision in Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue has been hailed as a seminal victory for religious liberty and education and attacked for poking yet another hole in the wall between church and state. The strong reactions the decision has engendered on both sides suggest that it has the potential to reshape the school choice landscape in the U.S. Will states soon be required to allow religious organizations to operate charter schools? Will the court find a constitutional right to private school vouchers? And how will the likely confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett as Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's replacement on the court affect the likelihood of these and other far-reaching scenarios? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and joining me today to discuss the fallout of the Espinoza case is Josh Dunn, professor and chair of the political science department at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and the legal beat columnist for Education Next. He's also the author of the new article, A Landmark Ruling for Religious Schools, that will appear in the winter 2020 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Josh, welcome back to the Ednext podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. So we're here to talk about your fascinating new article about the Espinoza case, but I can't pass up the chance to ask you as Ednext Legal Beat columnist about your reactions to the confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Yeah, so my first reaction was that I was very grateful that it wasn't like the Kavanaugh hearings. <laughs> that I think that's healthy for the Republic. Uh, obviously, the tension level, I think, was dramatically reduced, even considering the political circumstances surrounding the nomination. Uh, it's clear, of course, that Democrats are very upset about Trump pushing forward the, this, this nomination. Uh, but it wasn't nearly as, uh, I, I think, uh, destructive uh, uh, to the court and to just the society, our society as a whole, as what happened with Kavanaugh. Uh, so the fact that it went off relatively smoothly, she of course acquitted herself quite well. Uh, she was well spoken. She knew her material. Uh, attempts to trip her up were not successful, right? So it was on on her side of the course a very, uh, I think, a very successful not, uh, nomination hearing. Uh, but again, on the whole, I think it was we should just all be grateful uh, that there weren't any surprises that were sprung like last time. And she certainly offered a clear articulation and a spirited defense of her approach to constitutional interpretation of originalism that gives an indicator of what a major change this would represent in the center of gravity on the court, having her come in in the shoes of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh, yes. Obviously, this does push the court to the right. Uh, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was in no sense an originalist, <laughs> and we can immediately tell that there are going to be some issues where the, those, those two would rule differently. So uh, uh, you know, Amy Coney Barrett is clearly going to be uh, a presence who is going to pull the court to the right, perhaps even pull the chief justice along with her on some of these closely, uh, closely divided cases, just because I think the math then becomes easier for him. Uh, and yeah, it's going to be a consequence. It's going to be a consequential nomination. Of course, the big question uh, is: assuming she does finally get confirmed by by the Senate, uh, do Democrats try to increase the size of the Supreme Court? You know, that's a that's a that's a bigger debate. I suspect they don't in the end. I think it's actually damaging for them. Um, but you know, assuming the court stays at nine members, this is a very consequential replacement. Yeah, the range of scenarios that those of us who like to try to predict outcomes at the Supreme Court now need to consider 
is exponentially greater when we can start varying the number of justices as well as the composition of them. But let's turn now to the Espinoza case, which was among the blockbusters of the Supreme Court's 2020 term. Can you briefly remind listeners of the facts of the case and what the court decided? Yeah, so there was a tax credit scholarship case uh, from Montana, and Montana had created this program allowing uh, individuals, corporations to uh, use some money that otherwise would have gone uh, to their tax bill to, uh, to pay for scholarships for, for students to attend private schools. And then some parents chose to send their kids to Christian schools. The State Department of Revenue said that that violated their Blaine Amendment. Uh, the state Supreme Court agreed, but in fact struck down the entire program as a result as a result of that. And then it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said that that application of the Blaine Amendment violates the Free Exercise Clause, uh, that it uh, unconstitutionally discriminates against religious people and institutions simply because of their uh, uh, because of their religious status. Um, so it was a it was a major decision. Uh, what Montana did was surprising. There were there had been a lot of these programs, similar programs around the country, and none had been struck down uh, by their by their state supreme courts. But Mon- the Montana Supreme Court said that yes, this in- that their Blaine Amendment, which is, which are amendments saying that you can't provide money to uh, religious institutions, uh, uh, they said that 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 under their Blaine Amendment, that program was unconstitutional. So it's a bit surprising on there, and and but the Supreme Court's decision wasn't surprising either, considering what it just ruled you know a few years earlier. And you note in the article that the Espinoza decision is already affecting the trajectory of cases moving through the federal court system, including one out of Vermont dealing with funding for dual enrollment courses. Tell us about that. All right. So uh, there's a case in Vermont where you know, Vermont has had a dual enrollment program where students could take classes for both high school and college credit simultaneously, and the state would, uh, would assist or fund that. Uh, and up until now, the state has not allowed students enrolled in religious schools to participate uh, in this in this program. And this was being litigated. And shortly after the Espinosa decision, the circuit court panel uh, I- issued a decision saying, well, in light of Espinosa, look, it basically looks like these kids are going to win because uh, people, some, some religious school ch- students were challenging it. And so that, you know, that's a pretty powerful example of how the reasoning of Espinoza is already having, it, it's reaching down into the lower federal courts. They see the, they, they see the writing on the wall, and it's obvious that under, under Espinoza, what Vermont was doing couldn't satisfy you know, their, their scrutiny. And that represents really the first of four types of potential litigants that you run through in the article, illustrating how new claims could emerge in the wake of the Espinoza precedent. The first one you say is faith-based schools that have been denied the right to participate in choice programs because of their religious affiliations. Isn't that exactly what the court decided in Espinoza, that it wasn't okay to exclude faith-based schools from choice programs on the grounds of their religious affiliation? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it seems pretty clear that uh, under Espinoza, that simply because of their religious status, they can't be excluded, whether, you know, re- religious individuals wanting to participate in re- re- religious schools. And so you do have some cases, they're already working their way through the courts, like, like the case in Vermont, there's a case in, out of Maryland, another case, uh, another case in Maine. And it's difficult to see 
how a straightforward application of Espinoza does not lead to the states losing uh, in, the, in those cases. Um, I, I, think, I think it's going to be pretty easy, actually, for the federal courts to apply it in, in those circumstances. I suppose the one wrinkle that could come up, and if I understand the Maryland case correctly, this could come up there, uh, could not a state argue that we're not excluding a school because they're a religious school, but we're excluding them because they, for example, discriminate in their admissions in ways that we're not comfortable with. Would that be a distinction that the Supreme Court is likely to uh, find viable? I don't think so, because if you look at the, the concurring opinions, particularly Justice Gorsuch, who, who seemed to want to even go farther, uh, the, some of the other concurring opinions, what they pointed out was that just saying that discrimination based on status isn't allowed isn't going far enough, that the free exercise clause says exercise, so that must contain some active component. So that is, religious institutions must be able to act on their faith. And so I think in the case, for instance, in Maryland, and by the way, that's, the school in Maryland actually said that they never did actually violate the state policy of, of non-discrimination. Non they said they were fully in compliance with it. Um, whether or not that was actually the case, who, who knows, but they, they, they swore uh, essentially an affidavit saying that, that they, they were not in, in violation of it. Uh, it was just really a policy that applied during the school day, <laughs> essentially at school. So, uh, but now I think under Espinoza, it's going to be, it would be difficult for, uh, for ju judges, lower court judges, and then the Supreme Court to say, well, yeah, you can have your religious status, but you can't actually can't exercise on it. That is the, the things that give life to your faith, your doctrines. They can't really have any influence over how you conduct your business a, a, as an institution. I, it, I, I'm not, again, I don't think that Espinoza can be, can be read that way. Perhaps uh, there will be some push to do that. Uh, again, Amy Coney Barrett's addition to the Supreme Court probably makes that much less likely. Um, but there, there are some of the attorneys who are litigating these cases, they think that's kind of the last frontier of these Blaine amendments, where, where you will have states say, well, you're allowed to be religious if you aren't actually really religious. Uh, and that's what was going on in Maine, um, where they had this program because you have so, you know, some towns with such small populations, students, they're, they can't have a school in their own town. They're sufficiently large to support uh, their own school system. And they've had this They've had this program where students could go to other private private schools or other public schools, uh, and Maine has excluded religious schools there. But it turned out that they actually hadn't excluded all religious schools. Uh, that there were some religious schools that had been been included. But Maine's argument was essentially, well, if you look at these religious schools, they might historically they might have been a religious school, but they aren't really religious anymore, right? <laughs> they don't take it seriously or something like that. Uh, so that probably is going to be the the last frontier of this. Well, well, they'll say, yeah, you can you can um, ha have your religious faith as as long as it doesn't actually uh, affect how you provide an education or the requirements for getting into your school or for hiring teachers, those kinds of things. So let's turn now to the second category of potential litigants under the Espinoza precedent, and that you say is religious organizations that want to run a charter school, but are willing to do so on a non-sectarian basis. So tell us about what a claim uh, in this area would look like. Yeah, so let's imagine that you're in uh, an urban area and you feel that the 
students, the kids in your area are being underserved by the public school choices or options uh, that are available and that there aren't options for private schools either. They're too expensive, whatever would be the case. But you're religious, a faith-based organization. And so you come forward and you say, we would actually like as a service to our community to run a school. Uh, we will not do it uh, based in a, you know, a sectarian way. There's not, there aren't going to be chapel services. There aren't going to be admissions requirements based on uh, you know, a statement of faith that you have to agree to. Hiring of teachers, none of that. But it's just we just want to serve our community. We think it's important uh, as a faith-based institution to actually help our community this way. And you could easily imagine uh, organizations doing this, faith-based organizations doing this. Um, again, under Espinoza, I'm not certain how you could actually say that they couldn't do that. Uh, because you would essentially be saying that they aren't allowed to run a charter school just because of their religious status. I mean, leaving aside, you know, again, they're saying they aren't actually going to do anything religious in the, in the school, except maybe have some kind of general character education, something like that. Uh, character formation, right? That might be the way they, 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 they could, uh, could describe it. it. It seems that under that, that's clearly discriminating against uh, an organization simply because of their religious status. And just to illustrate what a sea change Espinoza is, my understanding is that arrangement would currently not be permissible in most, if not all, states that, that have charter schools. Is that correct? Yeah, it's difficult for me to imagine you know, a state that would have said, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. Uh, you know, local church or local religious nonprofit. Yeah, we, we'd like you to run. That's okay for you to run a charter. So if they, they had filed an application, I, I don't know of an instance where this happened. But I think uh, they're are some Catholic schools that have uh, converted to charter status and okay. it is still the same organization, but uh, oh, it's definitely yeah. the exception rather than the yeah. rule. So let's yeah. kick it up a notch then, because I right. agree that that second category seems to be fairly straightforward under Espinoza, but mm -hmm. what about a religious organization that says, we want to run an explicitly religious charter school? Is that going to fly under this precedent? It depends on how it strikes the justices, I think. I, again, I think you can make a decent case under Espinoza that not allowing them to run a, an explicitly religious charter school would be discrimination based on their religious status, purely based on their religious status. Uh, I mean, you're allowing others uh, to come in and run charter schools. And, uh, I, you know, I'm certain states would try to say, well, you know, they don't have some kind of religious mo motivation behind them, whatever would happen to me. Yeah, and then other people are going to say, well, you, you really don't think that there's come some kind of moral framework that informs all of education, right? Uh, so how is it that you can uh, actually exclude religious organizations uh, from this benefit, right? This generally available benefit. And I think the reason you can make this argument is because Justice Breyer essentially makes the same argument in his dissent. This is part of the reason Breyer was so upset. Uh, that is that he saw that attempts to limit the reasoning of Espinoza as being futile. Right? Chief Justice Roberts tried to uh, console the losing side <laughs> by saying, oh, well, you know, you're not actually going to have to fund you know, private religious education if you don't want to, all this kind of stuff. And Breyer just says, no, 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 no. If you actually look at the reasoning of this, you can't control it. You can't cabinet just to these narrow circumstances. And he actually, he mentions charter schools as, as an example of this. And he doesn't just mention charter schools, sticking with Justice Breyer's dissent, he actually goes so far as to say that in his view, the Espinoza precedent will obligate the court to find that states 
not just must permit vouchers to be awarded to religious schools, but may actually require them to do so. That the government funding of public schools is an otherwise available benefit that should also, must also support vouchers to attend a religious school. Is this credible? Again, I think the reasoning follows from Espinoza. But there are, I think, a couple of reasons to suspect that the court wouldn't approve it. Now, first of all, part of the reason that the reasoning follows from it is that this is exactly what happened with the, the development of public education in the United States. I mean, if you look at the development of public education in the United States, it was really to provide a benefit uh, to Protestants, right? And to, then to try to uh, con convert Catholics or at least make Catholics... Um, uh, worthy of living in America's Protestant constitutional republic, right? So they were really trying to deprive Catholics of an otherwise available benefit. And then, of course, that's what, Bla you know, the motivation for Blaine amendments as well was designed to really to punish, to punish Catholics, to, to make it very hard for Catholics to maintain their religious identity and faith by sending their kids to Catholic schools, trying to compel them into, into, you know, secular public schools, which were really Protestant schools. And of course, some states went so far as actually saying that you couldn't send your kid to a private school, like Oregon did, uh, leading to the Supreme Court decision and uh, uh, Pierce versus Society of Sisters. All right. So you could see this. This is exactly what they were doing. They're tr trying to provide a, a benefit, but for a certain segment of the, of the population at the harm of, an, of another segment. So you can just dust that off and say, well, why is it now that we as, ind as, as individuals can't then send our kids using this otherwise available benefit that you're funding everyone else for to the, to the school of our choice? So you, I think, again, the, the, reasoning, the reasoning follows from it. I think Breyer, Breyer was right to point it out. Now, there are a couple of reasons to suspect the court won't go that far, though. Uh, I think the first is that even though we have no idea what the actual standards are regarding the establishment clause right now, <laughs> the lemon test was kind of gutted <laughs> a couple of years ago. Uh, but I, there's probably there are probably enough justices on the court that that strikes them as just too much of an in intermingling uh, with of of the state and religion. Uh, so that would be one uh, an entanglement. I guess would be the official word. Uh, but there's a second reason why you might have some conservative defections, and that flows from this traditional conservative concern about judicial policymaking. Because if you look at those other examples, essentially what they're saying is states, if you have created this program, you just have, you have to allow religious individuals and schools to participate in it as well. So they don't have to create anything on their own. With something like a compelled voucher program, you would actually have to have judges essentially creating the voucher program, right? deciding how, well, how much the voucher should be. Should it be higher in certain parts of the state where you know, uh, the cost of living is higher? All of these details that conservative justices have long recoiled uh, against. And so I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are at least two or three justices on the court to say, that's just too much to, uh, work to ask the courts to do, right? This is a you're asking us to come up with a judicially manageable policy or remedy, and we just aren't capable of doing it. So at the end of the day, I hear you saying that the first three of these four categories of potential litigants have good reason to be optimistic, maybe especially good reason to be optimistic if Amy Coney Barrett is in fact confirmed to the court. But the fourth strikes you as 
one step beyond where you can see a majority of the justices getting. Yeah, I see the fourth as a real long shot. Uh, the first two are are almost guarantees, I think. <laughs> I think this, the third one, I, I think is more likely than not. Uh, again, you, you could imagine maybe a couple of conservatives worrying about too much entanglement, but I still think, I, I think the votes are there if, if, if Amy Coney Barrett gets on the court. But then the fourth, uh, that, that one's, uh, that, you know, that, that one really is going to require some, some conservatives to reconsider their, their longstanding hostility to judicial policymaking. And so for that reason, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put any money on it right now. Well, given how long the judicial process takes to unfold, we won't know for certain whether your predictions are right for a couple of decades, I imagine. But if you and I are still doing this, hopefully I can have you back and we'll check the record and see how you did. Yeah, yeah, no, that, um, yeah I think the first two actually we'll probably see within, well, the, you know, the first category we're going to see within the year uh, to two years. The second category, probably three to four. Um, the third category, uh, you know, that, that's probably seven to eight. Vouchers, you're right, probably decades. <laughs> My guest today has been Josh Dunn, professor at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, and Legal Beat columnist for Education Next. You can find his new article, A Landmark Ruling for Religious Schools, at educationnext.org. Josh, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Ednext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.